This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Tonight, both major parties back a home loan scheme that analysts say does nothing to make homes more affordable. Also, social media feeds will be full of political ads leading up to the election. A warning, though, who's behind the message may not be clear. They're insidious because it's like you're, you know, everyday person on the street and you're looking going, yeah, OK, that's an ordinary person. They think this way. I think that's pretty reasonable versus, say, uh, an authority figure saying, you know, you should vote for me. And the return of the cruise industry. What are the chances you'll get COVID on board? Every year you'd hear of cruises with outbreaks of gastroenteritis, cruises with outbreaks of Legionella, flu. It's a a setting where you have a large number of people in a small place. There is going to be a higher risk of spread of infectious diseases. The start of the second week of the federal election campaign has delivered a new round of promises for first home buyers who are struggling to save enough for a deposit and get into the market. They'll be able to buy more expensive homes, though, with the coalition and the opposition both pledging to increase the cap on loans through the first home buyer guarantee. Leading economists and housing experts say, regardless of who wins government, schemes like this will distort the market further and do nothing to improve housing affordability. Emily Burke reports. With housing affordability and housing stress featuring heavily in this cost of living election campaign, the Coalition and Labor have both agreed to a home guarantee scheme which allows first home buyers to buy a property with a deposit of 5% or just 2% for single parents without needing to pay mortgage insurance. But today Scott Morrison announced that a re-elected Coalition government would increase the cap on how much people can borrow under the scheme by $100,000 in cities and up to $150,000 in some regional areas. That means, as we've noticed with rising house prices around the country, we want to ensure that more Australians, those 50,000 each year, are able to get access uh, to those home guarantee packages which is getting Australians into their own home. In Sydney and major New South Wales regional centres, the cap will go from $800 to $900,000 from the 1st of July this year. Canberrans will have access to up to $750,000, a jump from the current half a million. In Melbourne and regional Victorian centres, the cap will be $800,000. And in the West, the cap will now be $600,000 in Perth and $450,000 in regional areas. Campaigning in WA, the Prime Minister met one of the scheme's happy customers, Nicole, who was able to buy a three-bedroom home for her family and pet dog. So it all came up really well. Um, It was just like a perfect time frame for the 2% that I had of just under 400. Yeah, no, it was perfect. So I I really appreciate it. So so thank you. My first home. You put your roots down. Yeah, 100%. The federal opposition is pledging to match the coalition's bid. Labor's Treasury spokesman is Jim Chalmers. 
and we've said for some time that we don't think the caps are appropriate. So to the extent that the caps are being changed today, we welcome that. This is obviously not the only part of a, a good, uh, broad housing policy. The national picture for property prices is mixed. Some parts of the market in Melbourne and Sydney are cooling, but that's not the case in Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide and Canberra. The rate of home ownership, though, is declining, and first home buyer grants are partly to blame, according to independent economists like Saul Eslake. What schemes like this do is push up the price of housing, essentially by the amount of additional assistance that's offered. The reality that all politicians are aware of is that there's at least 11 million voters who own at least one property. Uh, within that, there are at least 2 million who own two or more. And of course, those voters want governments to keep doing things that push housing prices up or stop them going down. And this is yet another example of these kind of, uh, that kind of scheme. Speaking to ABC News, he outlined the added risks. By encouraging people to take out mortgages with equity of their own of only 5%, or in the case of another scheme, as little as 2%, they are putting people at greater risk of finding themselves in negative equity should prices go down rather than up. And we know that house prices in Sydney and Melbourne fell in March. And if interest rates go up, as they seem almost certain to do over the second half of this year and probably next year as well, then there's at least some chance that house prices will continue to fall in at least some parts of Australia. And so people who enter these schemes, they could be putting themselves at some significant financial risk. And of course, we saw in the years leading up to the global financial crisis in the United States, just how risky that can ultimately be. The fact of raising eligibility for a scheme that is fundamentally not going to fix housing affordability will still not fix housing affordability. Wendy Stone is Professor of Housing and Social Policy at Swinburne University. What we're not seeing is uh, what we do need, and that's a national policy. It would be terrific to see a commitment to a national coordinated housing policy that really uh, takes a very mature conversation around the tax settings that we have. And rather than pitting landlords and um, people benefiting, for example, from negative gearing and capital gains tax exemptions against other people who aren't, we, we actually really need to work towards a win-win. And we can do that in a really clever way. To think about all of the, the financing that's in the housing system, all of that money uh, that people are investing and willing to invest, if we directed that very, very cleverly to the, the affordable supply of housing and new builds for people, we could really see some win-win scenarios in, in not too many years down the track. Swinburne University Professor of Housing and Social Policy, Wendy Stone, Emily Burke reporting. The Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, has been in Queensland today where voters all but abandoned the opposition in 2019. Labor has been trying to seed fears that if the coalition is returned, it'll cut Medicare, a tactic the government calls a scare campaign. Labor's also slamming the cashless welfare card. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has been in WA for the first time in this campaign. The Liberals need to hang on to some crucial seats there. Political reporter Stephanie Dalzell joins us now from Parliament House in Canberra. Stephanie, what's Mr Morrison announced in Western Australia today? 
So the Prime Minister was in the Labour-held electorate of Fremantle and he had money for first home buyers and also money for two Navy patrol boats to be built in WA. But this announcement's primary purpose was really to zero in on border policy and capitalise on Anthony Albanese's mistake yesterday where he incorrectly said his party supported temporary protection visas for asylum seekers and then had to clarify Labor's policy because it doesn't. Take a listen to what Scott Morrison said on that. That when Labor abolished temporary protection visas in 2008, the armada of people smugglers' boats came to Australia and that was the launching point. Now, given the numbers are tight, WA could be quite important this election. The Liberals hold 10 out of 15 seats in WA and Labor has its sights on three of those, Pearce, Swan and Hasluck. We also saw Liberal voters flip at last year's state election. So the Liberal brand has been damaged in the West and that's presenting challenges for the party at a federal level. Scott Morrison so far had a relatively smooth start to the campaign, but today he made his first gaffe. He incorrectly stated the rate of job seeker while answering a question on the cost of living, saying it's $46 a week when it's actually $46 a day. And Steph, you mentioned that Scott Morrison's been focusing on border policy. What's Labor been homing in on today? So Labor's really been focusing on Medicare. It's using the announcement that Anne Rustin would take over health should the coalition win the election to stoke fears about the future of Medicare funding. Her highlighting comment she made seven years ago when she described the level of Medicare support as unsustainable, even though the coalition has ruled out any cuts to the scheme. Now, the government's also been forced to respond to claims that the coalition would put pensioners on the cashless welfare card. Labor's not backing away from those claims, but a fact check by RMIT University, which was published by the ABC, found no evidence to suggest it will be expanded to pensioners. Labor's also been focusing on the Prime Minister's pick in Warringah, Catherine Dees, who also continues to be a thorn in the side of the coalition. She's been forced to apologise twice for offensive comments about transgender people that have surfaced in the past week. It seems there's a a new tweet uh, surfacing quite often here. Some Liberal MPs have privately told the ABC that Scott Morrison's keeping her out of pride because she was his pick and that that choice will have a huge impact on neighbouring seats like Wentworth for example. And the reverse is also true. It could also benefit the coalition's conservative base and help them pick up seats like Hunter in New South Wales, for example. And what's Anthony Albanese been doing in Queensland today? So Labor needs to pick up seats and Queensland presents a huge opportunity there for them because they hold just six out of 30 lower house seats. So Anthony Albanese has been in Queensland for a few days. He's the first leader to go there. And today was reminding voters of the PM's response to the devastating floods in January. And he was also facing questions about the latest polling conducted last week by Resolve. Of course, we also always need to be careful of poll results, but it is worth noting that this poll suggests that Anthony Albanese's stocks might have fallen. He's now trailing Scott Morrison 30 to 38% on the question of preferred Prime Minister and Labor's primary vote's also down four points to 34%. So the coalition's up slightly to 35% and it's worth noting, of course, that the notional marginal error for this poll is 2.6%. Here was Anthony Albanese's response to those numbers. I've consistently said that it's a mountain that Labor seeks to climb a mountain that seeks to climb because we've only done it three times since the Second World War. 
So it's always tough for Labor to win from opposition. So we know how tough it's going to be. And Samantha, public service announcement for everyone listening. Registrations to vote on May the 21st actually close tonight at 8pm. So if you're not enrolled yet, you have to be enrolled by then. Thanks for the reminder, Steph. That's our political reporter, Stephanie Dalzell. Political ads on social media were a big feature of the last election and the parties and candidates are using them to reach voters this poll too. But political advertising, even on traditional platforms, has long been controversial, mainly because there are no laws against distorting the truth. On social media, it's even more of an issue because it's easier to hide who's behind the political message and the ads target particular voters. Catherine Gregory explains. You may have noticed your social media feeds suddenly getting a little bit more political. From political ads on behalf of major parties or minor ones like Clive Palmer's United Party to political comments from your local members and candidates. That's because social media is increasingly a key battleground for the election. Social media is the place where the most eyeballs are. And so the parties are very interested to to get at those audiences. Professor Daniel Angus is with the Digital Media Research Centre at Queensland's University of Technology. He's part of a team that's tracking and analysing political ads and messaging on social media this election. We've got a couple of ways of doing this. One is using the um, provided by the platform's transparency tools, these kinds of dashboards that allow us to look at all the advertising that's being placed by the candidates themselves um, during the election and are actually properly disclosed on those platforms. But we're also using um, a crowdsourcing campaign where we're calling on any Australian user of Facebook, help us gather other forms of advertising that may not be visible within that transparency dashboard. The latter is essential, he says, because in the last election and in elections overseas, it's the non-disclosed closed and targeted political ads that have the potential to undermine electoral fairness. Well, look, it's important to our democracy. Um, Target advertising means you can target very specific messages to very specific groups. So you can kind of play both sides in a way. You could play, say, a very pro-coal message, say, in a region um, and play a very green message in a a city, in an urban area to try and kind of, you know, swing both ways across two different, very different demographics. It can be so targeted that your age, gender, location, likes and dislikes will determine what sort of ad you might see. And if those ads are under disclosed, it opens up a can of worms. Our personal information can be abused and we can be targeted with untruthful messages, in part because there's no rules against lying in political advertising. So there was a case recently in the last week where there was a website that was harvesting details of people um, and and connecting them to One Nation and um, United Australia Party candidates. Um, And this was not properly authorised and the ANC launched an investigation into this. Um, The domain itself was registered to um, the One Nation candidate here in Brisbane and um, and she's since been disendorsed by the party. Daniel Angus is referring to the AEC's investigation of a Facebook page called Join the Conversation, which described itself as a community page linking to minor candidates. But there was no authorisation statement and a domain search revealed it was connected with the One Nation candidate, Rebecca Lloyd. 
It's similar to astroturfing, which has become quite a thing in politics. That's when a political message or ad from a candidate or politician is made to appear like it's a grassroots community campaign on behalf of a community member. They're insidious because it's like your you know, everyday person on the street and you're looking going, yeah, OK, that's an ordinary person. They think this way. I think that's pretty reasonable versus, say, uh, an authority figure saying, you know, you should vote for me. Dr Michael Jensen is with University of Canberra researching political communication. He too has seen examples of astroturfing. Tweets, for example, that have raised uh, some concerns about whether they're uh, authentic in terms of who they claim to be. Earlier on in the campaign, I saw rumours about Australia using Dominion voting machines. And this was promoted by... Um, at least a few accounts that I also saw promoting false claims about the existence of U.S.-funded bioweapons labs in Ukraine. If, if we don't have accurate information, if we are, have our beliefs and our preferences distorted, that's a fundamental attack on the democratic process. But the use of social media for political advertising has some benefits too. It's cheaper than traditional advertising, so it offers a more level playing field in a way. Yeah, using social media for uh, election purposes is, is not necessarily uh, a negative thing. Dr Glenn Clefford is with the University of Queensland and has been studying the spend on Facebook ads. Labor is currently outspending the coalition on um, ads on Facebook and the Teal Independents have been spending substantial amounts of money um, in those inner city Sydney and Melbourne electorates. And there's a significant number of um, non-party, non-candidate entities which are um, spending money on advertising. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's good for democracy that there's various groups participating in the democratic process. Dr Glenn Clefford from the University of Queensland, Catherine Gregory reporting. You're listening to PM on the radio, on the ABC Listen app and via podcast. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, new figures from China suggest serious headwinds are hitting one of the world's biggest economies as harsh COVID lockdowns take a heavy toll. Ukrainian forces are staging a last stand in the bombed-out city of Mariupol as Russian forces edge closer to taking control. While that battle is playing out, missile strikes have been reported in the western city of Lviv, near Ukraine's border with Poland, and a number of people are reported to have been killed. The Ukrainian president is warning that a major Russian offensive is about to begin in the eastern part of the country, as Rachel Mealy reports. Ukrainian forces escort a woman back to her bombed-out flat in the city of Mariupol. Under attack, she'd fled with only the clothes she was wearing. But she doesn't know what comes next. My mother can't walk and my father is recovering after surgery, she says. I don't know what we're going to do. I have a daughter in Donetsk. Maybe we'll go there for the time being. The port city of Mariupol has been under attack from Russian forces since the beginning of March. Ukrainian forces hit back and held back the invaders, while tens of thousands of civilians remained in the besieged city. But the situation is looking increasingly bleak for Ukrainian forces. Yet Ukraine's Prime Minister Denis Shmyal is defiant. He says Mariupol remains in Ukrainian control. No, the city still is not fallen. 
there is still our military forces, our soldiers, so they will fight till the end. And as for now, they still are in Mariupol. But the view from elsewhere in the country is not so optimistic. Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitro Kaleba says Russian forces are closing in on Mariupol. The situation in Mariupol is both dire militarily and heartbreaking. Uh, the city doesn't exist anymore. The remainings of the Ukrainian army and large group of civilians are basically encircled by the Russian forces. They continue their struggle. Russian troops have gathered in the east of the country for what's expected to be a major assault on the region known as the Donbass. 26-year-old Maxim Laskovets is a commander in the volunteer army. He tells the BBC he's ready to fight off Russian attack. We will be ready to greet the Russians. They came to us with weapons, not the other way around. We live in Ukraine. This is our land. Donbass is the Ukraine. And I was born in Ukraine. And I will die in Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky says the next phase in the war is critical for Ukraine. For us, the battle for Donbass is very important. It is important for different reasons. For the reason of safety, first of all, our grouping that is located in Donbass is one of the best military we have. It is a large grouping, and Russia wants to encircle them and destroy them. It is nearly 40,000 people. It is 44,000 professional military men who survived a great war from the beginning of 2014. This is why it is very important for us to preserve that part of our army that is one of the most powerful. As the war closes in, the defiant president admits that he may be killed as the conflict becomes increasingly dangerous. He's told CNN he wants his children to know he did everything he could to save his country and he was asked how he'd like to be remembered. A human being that loved life to the fullest and loved his family and loved his motherland. Definitely not a hero. I want people to take me as I am, a regular human. The translation of the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's words, ending that report from Rachel Mealy. Well, back here now, and more than two years since they were banned from Australian waters, cruise ships are back. The first vessel sailing into Sydney Harbour this morning was met with fanfare from local tourism groups. But how COVID-safe are these floating giants? Matt Bamford has this report. We can't wait to come to Australia and complete our maiden season down under. Cruise ships are welcome back to Australian waters for the first time in more than two years. And if the latest advertising is anything to go by, it'll be full steam ahead. The P&O Pacific Explorer was the first to sail through Sydney Harbour today, arriving after an 18,000 kilometre trip from Cyprus. New South Wales Transport Minister David Elliott was part of the welcome party. Well, this is going to be a, a very, very special day for the people of New South Wales and particularly those who uh, love cruising with this new uh, return of, uh, of P&O cruises, uh, which is just day one of what we hope we'll see uh, a return in force 
of uh, those majestic ships. But cruise ships haven't always had a warm reception. In March 2020, the Ruby Princess became the source of the nation's first major COVID cluster. Infections on board led to hundreds of cases across the country and almost 30 deaths. It docked in Sydney one day before borders were closed. Jill Abel from the Australian Cruise Association insists the industry is safe and prepared to deal with the pandemic. So the key one is vaccination and uh, it's mandatory vaccination with uh, a, a maximum of only 5% on board that can't be vaccinated and that accounts for the children that can't be vaccinated. You know, there will be monitoring for um, wellness, um, for symptoms and the likes, but uh, you know, mask wearing where... Um, Social distancing can't happen, uh, limiting you know people's movement in different spaces and the likes. But the key the key element is vaccination, and that's what we've seen around the globe, where cruising's actually been up and going for quite a number of months now. Operators will also need to have outbreak management plans and COVID safety plans. You know, COVID's not going to stay off cruise ships the same way as it's not staying off resorts and holidays and you know trains and planes and the likes and social events that we're at. It's all about ensuring that people are vaccinated and and don't get ill, you know, too ill from the the virus, and then minimising the impacts of any cases on board. Epidemiologist Catherine Bennett from Deakin University says these are crucial steps. The focus is now really on prevention and containment should there be uh, an outbreak of anything on a ship, let alone COVID. Are you confident that enough work has been done, that the right protocols are in place for this to be an acceptable risk? Well, I think it is acceptable risk now. I mean, we're obviously allowing hotels and resorts and all other places to function. While it's reduced, the risk of infection remains. And Professor Nancy Baxter says transmission is inevitable. There will absolutely be outbreaks on on these cruises. I mean, to think that there won't be a cruise with an outbreak of COVID, uh, I, I, I don't think that that's reality-based. Um, you know, every year you'd hear of cruises with outbreaks of gastroenteritis, like I said, cruises with outbreaks of Legionella, of uh, flu. Um, you know, it's it's a, a setting where you have a large number of people in a small place. Uh, and so there there is going to be a higher risk of spread of infectious diseases. She says passengers should think carefully before booking a berth. So finding out what the cruise line is doing about uh, ventilation, that's really important to find out what they're doing about the indoor spaces to make sure the air is clean uh, and safe. Thinking about, you know, how much mixing and mingling you do. And the other thing is, you know, if you if you are concerned or if you are higher risk, then probably cruising isn't the right type of vacation for you at this point. Professor Nancy Baxter from Melbourne Uni's School of Population and Global Health. Matt Bamford reporting. Harsh COVID lockdowns and global inflation driven by the war in Ukraine are beginning to put the brakes on China's economic activity. China's gross domestic product grew by nearly 5% in the first quarter of this year, but the March activity indicators are showing growing signs of stress. Experts, though, say the GDP figures can't be trusted and China is facing a long-term economic slowdown that could have big consequences for Australia and the global economy. John has more. The Chinese government is going to alarming lengths in pursuit of COVID zero in one of the world's biggest cities. Here, Chinese police in hazmat suits are reportedly pulling Shanghai residents out of apartment buildings to make way for quarantine space. China's GDP figures out today paint 
a more rosy picture, with better-than-expected overall growth of 4.8% for the first quarter of this year. But experts say that's not the true story. Ryan Manuel is the Hong Kong-based founder of Bilby, an artificial intelligence firm using machine learnings to understand Chinese government policy and consequences. Good headline GDP is, is one thing, but, but that number doesn't tend to be taken very seriously, even by China's leaders themselves. And underneath that, the numbers that matter are falling and it's, it's a difficult situation for them at the moment. Uh, the biggest worry they have is about supply chains and in keeping the economic train on the tracks. I mean, the headline number is much better than it should be given the reporting on COVID. So what is the real state of the economy? It's not going so well. China is facing serious economic headwinds as March activity shows weakness in consumption, property and exports and a nationwide jobless rate at the highest it's been since May 2020. Authorities in Shanghai have today also reported the Chinese city's first COVID deaths since 2020. This adds to predictions from the Lowy Institute that China will likely experience a substantial long-term growth slowdown. Rowan Kallick, an industry fellow at Griffith University and former China correspondent for the Financial Review, says China's slowing economy will have massive implications. There's two things. First of all, the Chinese economy has for a couple of decades its rate of growth, given the size of the economy, has been driving global growth. That will inevitably drag global growth down. The second thing is supply chains. Supply chains very often end up with assembly in China, and uh, we're seeing uh, big problems in production in China. Nicholas Hunt, a WA-based trader who helped set up Chinese operations for some of Australia's biggest agricultural businesses, says the economic slowdown will have big consequences for Australia. So a lot of our inputs come from China. Uh, in the case of agriculture, it's inputs such as agricultural chemicals and fertilisers and tools and equipment. And the supply chain has been uh, disrupted, so those products will be in shorter supply and, uh, uh, and higher price. As far as our exports... This economic downturn, in addition to those existing troubles, you, you could see a slowdown in demand for high-end products, consumer products in China. Ryan Manuel expects that the Chinese government is just going to continue with its COVID zero approach. To them, this is a this is a problem of COVID being let out of control, which which obviously was always going to happen, mm. but their goal was to to stop it happening as long as possible, and they will continue quarantining and shutting down in a fairly remarkable fashion cities for as long as it takes. Hong Kong-based analyst Ryan Manuel ending John Daly's report. That's PM for this Easter Monday. I'm Samantha Donovan. Linda Mottram will be back with you tomorrow. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.